What is the state of modern policing and what is its historic function? We will be speaking to Hamid Khan, founder of the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition, about state violence and social control. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Concrete. My name is Renee Moya, and I am joined by my co-host, Sam Dean. Hi. Today, we are in conversation with Hamid Khan, a longtime grassroots organizer in the Los Angeles area and campaign coordinator with the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition. Hamid, welcome. Thank you. So over the last four years, there's been a renewed focus on police brutality, the racist criminal justice system, and the militarization of the police, including the deployment of surveillance tactics formerly reserved for national security infrastructure. These issues came back to media prominence with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and the aftermath of a series of murders, Trayvon Martin in 2013 and Michael Brown and Eric Garner in 2014. But the role of the police as the disciplinary force of a racialized working class is hardly new. We'll be discussing some of these issues today, including the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition's recent advances in its campaign against the L.A. County Sheriff's use of drones. Hamid, I'd like to start by asking you, in general, if you think the LAPD is representative of policing in the United States. The short answer is yes. And uh, just starting with a little bit of a longer answer, I think we have to go back to the origins of policing itself in the United States, which is very much rooted in slave patrol um, and then as slave catchers. So the start of the institution is, 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 is the same and how this has disseminated, how this has moved across the country. Uh, each police department, when you look at them, uh, they are there to preserve, preserve, maintain and sustain white supremacy. They are there to preserve containment zones. They are there to enforce laws, uh, which cut across on a federal level on a, and then state levels. There's a lot of similarity. So the, the, the operational code pretty much is, is very similar. Now, of course, you know, demographics and geographies, that may shift a little bit. I mean, how policing in the Midwest, where there's majority white population or overwhelming white population, what their relationship with the community is could be a little different mm-hmm. versus how is it, it is in New York or Chicago or Los Angeles or larger areas where you have black populations or people of color. So, so I think if we look at it through that lens, um, there may be some basic differences in their relationship with the community, but but the intent remains the same. Right. And I kind of have a question about just on that topic of the history of from, you know, slave patrols and slave catchers and stuff like that. Is that at all ingrained in the explicitly in the structure of something like LAPD, like from the way it was actually founded? Or is it more of just institutional memory and, you know, the position within the power structure of the city? It is pretty much as a process that has always been there. I mean, of course, over time, how things have evolved. And I think this is where we need to bring in the international connections as well, that how both the domestic and the international spheres inform each other. Uh, and, and, and particularly post-Vietnam, you know, where we have seen the shift in policing, where increasingly uh, policing started incorporating counterinsurgency methodologies in their daily operations. So that's one thing. But we also need to take go back in time a little bit that when it when it comes to surveillance that how that has evolved as well. Uh, surveillance by itself is is as old as the founding of the, of the United States and even even before that as well. But just going back over the last 200 years I can point to lantern laws where uh, a black body, a, per, a slave, had to walk with a lantern to self-identify 
by themselves as a threat and self-surveil if they were not accompanied by a master. So this was happening in New York. This was happening in other parts of the country as well. So as you move forward, uh, while a lot of times when it comes to surveillance, a lot of focus is placed on federal agencies like the FBI or or the National Security Agency, the NSA, but local law enforcement agencies precede these these uh, organizations by at least 50 or 60 years. Mm-hmm. And some of the earliest, uh, uh, more formally institutionalized, institutionalized form of surveillance comes immediately, and this is where the connection to labor comes in, that uh, immediately in the aftermath of the haymarket strikes in Chicago in 1886 for the eight-hour workday. So immediately in the aftermath of that, there's all, all this documentation and research that the Chicago Police Department chief uh, um, uh, stated that we have entered a new age of ideological warfare. This is about the the anarchist movements and the various other fight for uh, fi- fight for workers' rights. Um, and within two years, Chicago PD was the first organization that formed a covert uh, unit within its department called the Red Squads. Mm-hmm. So the police Red Squads started in the late 1880s, and from there on, how they moved into Philadelphia, how they were created in New York, how in Los Angeles. So some of the earliest things with Los Angeles. Were what we have mapped out go back to the 1920s, uh, where these red squads in L.A. were based out of the Chamber of Commerce. Um, and that's and then uh, and and and, and over eighty percent of their funding uh, would come from the manufacturers association, the retailers association, uh, the hospitality associations, and then we also need to look at some one of the biggest uh, um, a space that generates the most revenue for the city, and that is the port, Los Angeles port and Long Beach port are the they're the biggest it's the biggest port in the country and the second or the third largest port in the world, so the organizing that was going on and this. This is where the uh, uh, IWW and, and the various other ILUs, so various other uh, workers' organization, and then what was the role of LAPD uh, at that time? Um, there's also documentation that how LAPD would be gathering information, uh, um, infiltrating these groups, and then selling that information to various um, uh, you know manufacturers and retailers and all that to the extent that in the in the 1970s late 70s early 80s um, the the LAPD had formed by that time had had formalized this in their structure and they called it the 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 public disorder intelligence division and when they were busted um, it was found out that they had 200 200 uh, 2 million files on 55,000 individuals. They had infiltrated every city council member's office in L.A. They had infiltrated over 200 nonprofits. And even the mayor, Tom Bradley, at the time who was the first black mayor of Los Angeles, they had infiltrated his office. And when Tom Bradley would be having meetings with folks from United Farm Workers around the Gallo wine strike, all that information would be gathered by the LAPD and sold to a group in San Francisco called Western Gold Society, which is an extension of the John Birch Society. Oh, wow. So, so this is a little bit of a history lesson there, uh, the background as to how. So, so that's why you know it's it's necessary that uh, when we talk about uh, you know state violence, I mean it's it's about knowing our fight as well that how deep it runs. I think it also kind of informs a little bit about the uh, I guess this this shall we say illusion that people have about what elected officials can do in mm-hmm. you know in relation to the state. This kind of more <clears throat> permanent or permanent. Uh, uh, structure uh, in you know that is the state itself. I think we oftentimes forget. We oftentimes mention it in relation to the bureaucracy, but not necessarily towards things like the security aspect of the ap- or apparatus of the state itself. Absolutely, so. absolutely. 
so could you perhaps talk uh, to us a bit about the escalation of police militarization in America and mm-hmm. how this relates to the history of colonialism mm-hmm. in particular? I guess what I'm trying to find out is what ties uh, the history of, let's say, SWAT teams in the U.S. and the bombing of the MOVE commune by the Philadelphia police in 1985 to this longer story or longer history, really. What did we, you know, how did we get here? Mm-hmm. So um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a great proponent of uh, speaking about things or understanding these institutions in the context of history as well, because none of this is a moment in time, but a continuation of history. So when you speak about colonialism, some of the earlier formations of police go back to around the early 13th century. 13th century England, and which also coincides with Ireland being the longest held colony, mm-hmm. an English colony, you know, it's going back to that. So how policing became formalized and how people were, were, were basically contained and, 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 and occupied, um, as, as in colonial United States is all about colonial North America or Americas, uh, and then moving into the United States, uh, I, the the militarization of police has always been very much present in one way or another. Uh, and I think when we speak about militarization, we somehow get caught up into bombers and missiles and all of that. It is it, it, we have to look at the intentionality and how actions and operations get institutionalized. I think that's even more critical. So in essence, what the police does is that one of the ways to look at militarization is that how a garrison state operates. And a garrison state is basically a, a, a location or an area where military has heavy presence. Mm-hmm. Typically, we look at garrison states during martial law, or we look at garrison states during, during military rule. But when you look at the, the, the police departments or the police in the United States. By the way, there's about 18,000 local law enforcement agencies. So it's, it's a vast apparatus employing close to about a million people. So it creates a lot of employment as well for people. Um, we have to look at that how just the sheer presence of a policeman, so sheer presence of a police personnel creates this zone of control. You know, I mean, and we have to just personalize that experience as well. That what does it do to us? What does it do to our body? And how we feel controlled and contained. So I think we have to start, when we look at militarization, we have to start from there. Now you start handing them out tools. I mean, why is it that we always talk about the English Bobby only holding a baton and the U.S. and the U.S. holding a, a gun? I mean, I think there's two ways to look at it. One, because England by itself is a hyper-surveillance society to begin with. So the Bobby is always, you know, just informed of who's going around and what's going on. Always, you know, available. The reinforcements are available as well. It's a huge meme in the United Kingdom, for example, to talk about CCTV cameras, for example, Absolutely. all around London. You can't walk around central London without being surveilled. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. But then when you bring in race... So that's when you bring in, like, okay, it's not going to be talking somebody down. It's about, like, controlling and setting an example, either through through organized lynching or through organized murder and organized shooting as well. So then, fast forward now, I think, how military equipment, which is being used for war, and, and it is always like war abroad is always war at home. So everything that is being tested on the battleground is always brought home Absolutely. into the United States as well. So I think militarization has been going on for the longest time in the United States. Uh, it has definitely expanded exponentially since since 9/11. That is, and I think one of the pieces with the advancement of technology, that how fast information moves and how the information sharing environment has been created, I think that by itself gives it a new slant to the militarization. This is about occupying, 
you know, just forces. This is this is what counterinsurgency and counterterrorism, uh, you know, just prerogatives do. Well, and is there even, I mean, do you think there's even a meaningful distinction to make between the military and the police when, like you were talking about before this interview started, the, um, you know, the LAPD trained a bunch of Marines for the occupation of Iraq? I mean, is there a real distinction to be drawn? Um, uh, maybe just uh, the way the way the rules and the way the jurisdictions are written, right. the, the one can draw a distinction. But I think a distinction. But I think the operation um, is is pretty much the same. There's there's there there's, there's stark similarities between these operations about these two. So uh, on one hand, and the language, the way that gets used as well. For example, let's take current examples right now. What's happening in Afghanistan and other places where the U.S. military, you know, just maintains. And I'm reminded that um, since the founding of the United States, U.S. been has has been at war for 212 years. So it's just been you know the, the level of of the amount of uh, warfare that we have engaged in, which means that we're always at war at home as well. So. I think the, the the way the distinction or the similarities are that that how both operate as occupying forces, right? And this is where the locally the language that we hear is counter, is community policing. Community policing is directly coming out of counterinsurgency because community policing basically means building relationships with the community. So let's look at who they're building relationships with. It's it's identifiable, hand-picked leadership in the community, church leaders, people in the education, people in some of the nonprofit, people some in the civil rights area. Similarly, when you draw parallels with, with Afghanistan and having grown up in Pakistan and being familiar with, with the traditions and societies, that how tribal leaders, some of them are hand picked. Some of them are also, and I'm reminded how during the Afghani Mujahideen era, that how they were, they were sort of like, you know, feasted in the in Reagan White House and how they became the moral equivalent of our founding fathers and everything else. <laughs> right. So I think so, so the similarities are very much there. They both, and, and I think people on the receiving end would also argue um, that there's more violence by local law enforcement agencies on their communities than what you would see uh, in overseas occupation as well. Because in the overseas occupation, as an occupying army, there is a little bit of fear factor as well. Like going into into communities that have been there for 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 generations and generations, over here, so it, you're into somebody else's home, you're into somebody else's domain. Well, this domain in the United States was created to control and contain people. I think you do get an interesting dynamic, oftentimes, even when you see the difference in international law and domestic law and how it treats certain issues. So, for example, I'm thinking of the operation of things like uh, or the use of dum dum bullets, for example, right? Police forces and you know domestically, oftentimes, have free reign to be able to use them and you know blow someone's brains off, like quite literally on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you know, when it comes to the operations of international law in the military field, you can't use those for a variety of reasons. It would violate the laws of war itself. So well, I think Unless if you're Israel and United States. Exactly. Then you can use, then you can use depleted <laughs> uranium want, and everything right. else that you want or, or bunker busters or whatever they call it. Then right. NBC <laughs> weapons are exactly. perfectly fine exactly. there in that case. Yeah. Uh, I did want to ask one quick follow-up question, though, on this. Uh, it's sort of tied in, and I'm not entirely sure how much you'd be able to speak about this, but the issue of immigration for right, example, right. Uh, I think that the, the, the dimension of uh, policing, if you will, uh, that comes in with ICE and the like is something that oftentimes we conceptually don't have uh, you know, a lot of ease with. We don't mm-hmm. understand very well. I think a lot of people aren't really 
they're not cognizant of how the legal the legal structure around immigration works and what kind of rights, if any, you know, immigrants oftentimes have. So could you say something maybe about like how the immigration detention uh, system works in relation to policing in general in the United States? Sure. And I think even for that also, there's got to be some baseline uh, understanding that how immigration system has evolved and changed over time as well. I mean, when you look back at immigration and looking at it in the larger context of migration itself, um, what has happened over the last three or four decades is that the immigration system has shifted more from its adjudication role into an enforcement role. So, so that's the first thing that we need to see. Immigration, so, and th so that's the one piece. The second piece of what is happening today in the, in the immigration field is, again, not new. Because what we have seen over time, for example, in the late 1800s, the Chinese Exclusion Act. You know, we have to look at that. In the early 1900s, the Alien Land Law Act. Then in the 1920s, the denial of and revoking of citizenship of people. There was a, there was a case of a, um, uh, of, uh, of a Sikh man uh, who, who had applied for citizenship, had fought in the, in the, in the, with the military as well. But, and, and because the way, um, the way uh, I guess, the way races had been defined, um, they were, and me, by, myself being a South, South Asian and Pakistani, uh, for the longest time my license said C as a Caucasian, right? It's, it has shifted over time. So, but then the, 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 the methodology and the, the identification changed that, yes, you could be a Caucasian, but you're not white. So, so then people were denied citizenship, um, and then there was a ban on, on migration as well from several countries until in the 1960s, 1965, the Immigration and Naturalization Act, which opened up migration from many other countries in the world. So since then, of course, enforcement, so enforcement has been going on in one way or another. Now the sheer numbers and the multiplier effect has been uh, because of the, the, the first category, the second category of like, you know, uh, how the directly spouses of, of people who are U.S. citizens, children of people who are U.S. citizens, then parents, and on and on and on and on and on. So, so the policing of, of migrant communities is, is nothing new. I mean, I think this is where, but it is getting more and more policed and it's getting more and more equipment. Now they are even looking at, the, looking at predictive algorithms mm -hmm. to see and to use risk assessment tools to see whether a person would be a contributing citizen when they're applying for their citizenship applications or not, when they're applying for a visa. So, 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 the, so the, the terrain has, of course, technologically, it has expanded quite a bit, um, but the, the intent remains the same. Uh, I'm reminded that when uh, right after 9-11, there was a an NCS program that was instituted, the National Security Entry Exit Registration Program. I was with a group called the South Asian Network at the time, and we had we had placed ourselves at the time outside the federal building to to remind people. To, to warn them not to go in for these interviews because they'll be put in a deportation list. And there was a meeting that was arranged by the Director of Western Region of Immigration, and, and the person stated, and we asked them, like, you know, why are you, why are you curtailing this? And he said, well, we have to maintain balance. And he was directly alluding to race. So, so I said, okay, let me understand this. So somebody coming from Denmark has to, their, their process, their adjudication process takes three months versus somebody coming from Mexico or Pakistan, which takes 15 years. So you are saying to maintain that, that, that the, the, the white majority, 
this is how institutionally and bureaucratically you're exercising these things. Of course, he was silent to that thing. He wouldn't answer. But, but we have to constantly bring race into the equation. I mean, I think race becomes a central. Uh, I mean, of course, class is a critical issue, but race remains a central piece of how institutions have been have developed and they operate in the United States. Well, yeah. And did the experience of the South Asian community in particular lead into this kind of uh, work on policing and surveillance? I mean, was that just something that a lot of the, the members of the South Asian Network brought up? I mean, how did well, that lead into that? Policing and being policed has always been a part and parcel as an immigrant community because, I mean, because as an other, as a collective other, you're always surveilled and always watched. I mean, whether it's happening by law enforcement agencies that, you know, okay, you're some, something different, what is going on, and now particularly how you, your identity gets overly politicized as well, and then you're considered a threat. Uh, to the system. So, so the experiences of being hyper-policed in various, and not just, not only just directly policed, but every step of the way, whether it's seeking public benefits, whether it's seeking education. So now the, a set of questions and, and the scrutiny that happens is on a different level. So I think that was always pretty much a part and parcel of, of the work at the South Asian Network. Um, and, 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 and more so, uh, immediately after ni- 1990s formation, the policing bill, the 1995 World Trade Center attack that happened uh, by, by some folks over there. And then, so it's been, it's been a ongoing then 1996 which was a seminal year for for around like how policing expanded on a much more bigger level you have the immigration bill which introduced first time the retroactivity of of, of crime right. which means are your green cards even with green cards you're deportable it the welfare reform act happened um and then also the the crime bill uh and then the anti-terrorism def- effective death penalty act so these kind of brought everything together so policing and surveillance were always a part of south asia networks work. Great. So you're one of the founders of the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about the origins of the coalition and who constitutes it exactly? So um, in late 2010 was when uh, some of the folks, including myself and uh, uh, some of the other folks who've been doing anti-state violence work, frontline work in, in Los Angeles, which we, I had worked with them very closely when I was at South Asian Network, Los Angeles Community Action Network, LA Can, Youth Justice Coalition, uh, and some of the other groups in LA. Um, we all came together and started talking about that how increasingly uh, counterterrorism and counterinsurgency tactics were being incorporated and slowly codified into domestic policing. How some of the, the, the counterterrorism intelligence gathering operations that were laid out were now being being incorporated into local policing. And one of the earliest programs uh, I can point to is the National Suspicious Activity Reporting Program, uh, which came on the heels of the 9-11 Commission Report. Uh, and the basic premise of the 9-11 Commission Report was that the events of 9-11 happened because information was not being shared amongst various agencies. Um, so then they, they, which led to uh, Congress passing a law in 2004 called the Intelligence Reform Terrorism Prevention Act, which then mandated the executive branch, the president, to create a mega information sharing environment. 
which also then led to the creation of the Director of National Intelligence, that office which brought about 17 national intelligence agencies under one umbrella. Um, so in that, then they launched this program where the, the, uh, the, the thinking was that we can identify when a violation has happened, which could then potentially help us understand if, if there could be a link to terrorism. But what about things that don't fall under the criminal code? that people may be thinking of committing a, a, an act of terror. So that's what led to the creation of the National Suspicious Activity Reporting Program, which then outlined various behaviors that, if observed, would then lead to, I mean, basically uh, legitimizing speculative policing. Right. So some of these behaviors would include taking photographs in public, using video cameras in public, um, walking into buildings and asking about hours of operation, um, you know, just, just drawing uh, diagrams if you're sitting around, and if you're so, so a bunch of these uh, were then codified into into the Director of National Intelligence directives, and then LAPD was the first uh, local law enforcement agencies that adopted the program and became a model. So that happened in March of 2008. So with, in line with that, then in, in 2009 they started another program, companion program called iWatch, small letter I in watch, which the tagline is "See something, say something," right. which you may say may see on train stations and all of these yes. things. So that really led to a lot of conversation that uh, we need to really um, you know, investigate this further and organize. Um, and as we dug more and more, what we have done over time is to really create a whole architecture of surveillance, both including human-based intelligence gathering and technology-based intelligence gathering as well, where they're using technologies like trap wire technology, which is if you're walking down the street, your body image is picked up in real time through thermal imaging, and it's immediately transmitted to fusion centers, which are these spy centers and warehouses of information collection. Then they're uploaded into these databases and they're matched along with these databases. If you're driving down the street, then license plate readers are picking up your movement. If you're on the phone, there's Stingray technology, but there's also more advanced technology to do that. That's called digital receiver technology, the dirt boxes that FBI uses. Uh, body cameras are a major source because now body cameras are going to be just uh, including facial recognition technology, biometrics, and artificial intelligence. So this is that's what led to the creation of uh, the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition. Um, and the, so the, 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 the founding guidelines of the coalition from the start was, number one, that we have to look at it that this is not a moment in time, but a continuation of history because it's always been going on. What have we learned and how have people you know, fought back? Um, number two, that there's always an other because and, and we use the analogy of the five faces over time that how otherness is defined and it's created and justified both in the economic, political, cultural and social sense. So for, for example the, the, the face of the savage native that how just you know, just just the the oppression and the genocide of the native people was justified by creating the otherness and 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 creating the savagery of the native. Like you know, they're incapable, so we need to take the land over. Uh, the the face of the criminal black that how in perpetuity criminality is attached and it's almost pathologized when you when people think of black criminality is, is runs along with that. Um, the illegal Latino that how that face is paraded within our cultural imagination and understanding. Uh, the the disloyal and manipulative Asian, uh, even the the executive order 9066, which led to the Japanese internment and concentration camps. The argument was, and it's a direct quote, that persons of Japanese ancestry contain enemy race blood, hence inherently disloyal and shall always remain unassimilable. So right. so this was the argument 
for the internment and the fifth face of the Muslim terrorists in the South Asian. And then in between, the queer trans folks, uh, women, poor folks, unhoused folks. So I think it's the otherness that we always need to be very much aware of. Um, then the third guideline is that that we need to desensationalize the rhetoric because it's always an, an element of fear and since and it gets sensationalized. The Russians are coming, the commies are here, so that's that's what always justifies that. Now the terrorists are here, so justification. So where rather than that, how do we then bring it back that no, this is twenty four hour, twenty four seven operation that is being incorporated into local policing. And the fourth guideline uh, uh, value that we have is that our fight is grounded in human rights, um, that we need to look at it beyond privacy, that this is about race, this is about human rights, this is about human impact, and our fight is not limited to constitutional and civil rights. So these are just uh, some of the, the founding principles and values of the coalition. And since then, we've engaged, our, our, our primary goal, quite frankly, is to, to mainstream the conversation, to demystify uh, surveillance as we know it, and and how do we how do we look at it, and how do people understand surveillance as a tool of social control? That what does it do? I mean, what how uh, how does it how does it create these power dynamics, and it ends up in in, in empowering the powers to be for more social control. So yeah, I, I guess we'd like to turn to how data collection and sharing by local and federal agencies. Uh, has turned from something that was used on a national scale um, with, you know, intelligence gathering organizations uh, collaborating with companies like Palantir uh, and and other big data collection agencies to, you know, try to track Osama bin Laden, they say, in all their, you know, press releases and stuff like that, which is now being used to track low-income communities of color in L.A. and um, undocumented immigrants and, you know, communities like that, like how this has shifted from that kind of, well, I guess, I mean, you said that LAPD was one of the first agencies to start using the uh, system of information sharing with federal agencies after the 9-11 Commission report came out. Um, and I guess I'm curious how that how that's been used in L.A. specifically. I mean, how counterterrorism uh, has been used to apply to almost any kind of policing mm-hmm. uh, beyond, you know, any kind of reasonable expectation of terrorism or, you know, it's just it's just an infinite kind of right. ambit that they have now. So data collection between uh, various agencies has been going on for quite some time. What has shifted or maybe just added is the speed at which information sharing takes place. So that's where you know we see a lot of uh, uh, high-speed and fast-moving uh, data processing systems and search engines like Palantir, which basically started off uh, by an investment from CIA's own venture capital arm, NQTEL, where they invested close to $50 million. And it was started by the, the guy, Peter Thiel, who started PayPal. Um, who's one of the closest associates of Donald Trump? Right. Um, so, so, but I think as we before we go into that, I'd like to talk a little bit about what are some of the the two key pieces that a lot of this is built upon. Um, one of them is behavioral surveillance. So behavior, behavioral surveillance has now increasingly become the, 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 the primary factor to gather information on people. Like, okay, so that's what the suspicious activity reporting program was as well, that you're observing somebody's behavior, uh, which reasonably indicates a pre-operational planning. So you're looking at somebody, they're engaging in a behavior, and you can speculate that they may be thinking of doing something like this. So that's one piece. The other piece to that is all the information that is gathered from there, uh, that would be data mining. 
So this, this whole interaction between behavioral surveillance and data mining is really at the heart of how data sharing is taking place. So now in that, how is behavior understood? So now the apparatus gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is where both we have to look at the public sector, we have to look at the private sector, we have to look at intelligence agencies, we have to look at government agencies and all of these agencies as well. So what is happening is that a massive, and when we talk about surveillance, I think it, it's critical that we speak about it more as an information sharing environment, that how information is gathered, how is it stored, and how is it shared. And when you look at it, and we've actually created a, a diagram on that, um, and when you look at it, there's a lot of interfacing and interplay constantly going on. So in essence, I mean, we have to name it as a stalker state, that we are constantly being stalked. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hear, increasingly, we hear more and more about big data. We hear more and more about data-driven, evidence-based you know, these terminologies, we hear about risk assessment tools. I mean, these have been going on for a long time. Uh, before the 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 broken, there was broken windows policing, before, now there's predictive policing, before predictive policing, there was CompStat policing, the computerized statistical model of gathering information. But what it would take, uh, so the template has been there, in right. a sense. It's, again, it's not a moment in time, but a continuation of history. But the speed at which data is being processed what would take them 10 hours is now being done in five seconds or less right. than five minutes. So I think this is this has really then given a, an incredible amount of access to information. Um, but then again, like, you know, they're, 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 I mean, what, what happens is that to, to that point in late 2012, a U.S. Senate subcommittee did an audit of intelligence gathering at fusion centers. These are these warehouses of information. These are basically spy centers, right? And the the study came back and the report came back and they said that intelligence gathering at fusion center is flawed, it's irrelevant, it's useless, it's duplicative, and it's a potential violation of Privacy Act protections. But but the point I'm trying to get to is the mindset. So when the LAPD's head of counterterrorism, Michael Downing, was asked about the, the, report, the report, his response was, and I quote, well, there's a lot of white noise, but an occasional gold nugget. So they're looking, they're literally looking for a needle in a haystack. So what happens is along the way that, for example, speak going back to the suspicious activity report, let's say you're out there taking a and these are actual reports that we have seen. For example, a group of, and this is real report, a group of young uh, uh, four women from Brentwood Art School in Los Angeles. They are stopped. They're out on a photography field trip, right? They're taking photographs. Their information gets picked up by the sheriff's department, and now it's uploaded into secret files, which then goes to fusion centers, which then goes and now and then it, their information is given to a joint terrorism task force investigation. They may be deemed innocent, but the FBI still gets to keep their files for 30 years. Wow. So, so this is how this information sharing environment works. So what will happen is that any time, because private corporations are heavily involved in this thing as well, all other agencies are involved, private agencies are involved, public agencies are involved. When there's pre-employment check taking place, when they are traveling, they'll be flagged at suspicious people. And then a lot of this information is constantly, there's an inflow or outflow, a hub and spoke system of information uh, gathering and storing and sharing. Right. Well, you touched on how this interacts with the, you know, the welfare state and means testing and travel and stuff like that. I'm just curious if you could kind of elaborate on that. Like, do these flags, do these kind of uh, suspicious behavior reports get integrated into the entire state that wouldn't normally be associated with, um, you know, police surveillance or kind of uh, counterterrorism activity? 
So they absolutely do, and through access, uh, the way they they access this information, the one conduit of information is the fusion centers. Right. Uh, in Los Angeles, it's called the Joint Regional Intelligence Center in Norwalk in East Los Angeles County. It's one of the largest fusion centers in the country. There's about 80 or 85 around the country. So, uh, so going back to the information sharing environment, uh, to give you one small example, that your information is moving through Palantir systems and very and other data processing systems systems as well, uh, let's say your DMV information, right? Then your information, your, your medical history, then your education history through the Social Security Administration is your employment history, how much money that you've moved through your Department of Transportation or the FAA is your, your travel history that is going on as well, whether it's through by train or by bus. So anytime your personal information has been recorded anywhere, and then through that, accessing with, with private companies as well, because I think this is something, and this is, um, there was a report that came out uh, from Washington Post, and this is a pretty old now, it's seven years old, it was called Top Secret America, and at that time they had identified over 1,900 private corporations already involved in the surveillance industrial complex. So there's a lot of money that has to be made as well. There's a company out of Santa Ana, uh, which about seven, eight years ago was already claiming, and my, the name is, uh, uh, I can't remember the name right now, that they were claiming that they had information on 98% of the U.S. population. On, on their on their on their eating habits, on their socializing habits. So all of this information then is up for sale. So then what happens is that the FBI, the LAPD, and various of these various agencies actually buy this information from uh, from private corporations as well. Um, and that's that's where the information goes. So so it is it's a vast apparatus. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 it operates on many different levels. Well, and who just just to be clear, who owns or operates these fusion centers? Are those private public partnerships? Is it owned by LAPD? I mean, they are jointly run by the federal government, Department of Homeland Security, the okay. FBI, the state, and local jurisdictions. Okay, so really, so so they're they're fusion, joint. Right, yeah. Okay. And so that's that's where the fusion <laughs> comes in. The budgeting process is as such that majority of the monies, at least last week we checked, came in from local and state bodies oh. uh, these fusion centers. Uh, but th- but the part but the accessing information could be anybody, private right. corporations. They even train private individuals known as TLOs, terrorism liaison officers, where the FBI has regular trainings. So if you want to be a TLO, you can go and get trained. Um, so they have access to people's information as well. Wow. So it's 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 a pretty uh, huge operation that they're doing who could anyone become a tlo they they (laughs) no really absolutely they have regular trainings over there wow so the so the the partnership is between all so nsa i mean while the nsa the claim is that the nsa doesn't get information locally but through the national counterterrorism center through the fusion center there's full access to this information both from nsa and i think this is where the concept of i don't know if you're familiar with parallel construction Mm -hmm. that concept plays very heavily as well so a lot of times when we are looking at investigation, the police may be gathering information on people which may not be considered legal in the court system, but then that helps them in creating a case, which then they do legitimate Sort of like you know, just surveillance and information and and, and investigation as well. So it's uh, it's 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 really messed up. It's, it's, yeah. it's very deep. You, see, I guess you open yourself up as a target, right? For that. you open absolutely. I, I, the, the question I did have now, though, is you know about predictive policing. You've, you spoke about that model a little bit earlier. I'm wondering how much do the, these other kind of like third party like or third aspects of of one social life like play into that? You know, one's access of like the welfare state, for example, of, of Section Eight housing. Do any of those items maybe get included in in 
constructing a profile of a potential criminal or how, do, how does that work exactly? What is predictive policing? Absolutely. So I think, um, uh, well, I mean, predictive policing is a is, is yet, I would say, a yet another new and fancy name uh, given to the same type of policing that who is going to be targeted. Right. So in essence, uh, what predictive policing is based upon is looking at previous histories of individuals and and communities. So it's a, there's a place-based predictive policing and there's a person-based predictive policing. So place-based community poli- poli- predictive policing would be that looking at every 12 hours, updating if there's crime history in a particular location and then creating hotspots in that location, 500 by 500 square foot, and then deploying patrol cars. And the And the claim is that they act as a deterrent. So this is preventive. Uh, this is preemptive policing. But in essence, when you look at uh, which, which communities have been historically policed the most and which communities' histories and information has been in, 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 in these databases, it's the same communities that creates that feedback loop of injustice or feedback loop of, of racial profiling. Right, so that's one thing which happens when the, when the communities are laid under siege, um, and and this is where going back to the earlier comment, this is how communities get pathologized. This is how it works, and then the cultural and the social context as well. That that criminality is already predetermined. So that's a, the locate the community based or location based. Person based predictive policing is a little different. That what it does is it looks at the previous history of an individual, uh, without looking at the conditions on the ground or poverty and various other social and economic factors. That if there was any previous gun possession, if somebody's on parole, if somebody had any gang affiliation or what have you, all that information is gathered and then there there is a process the way a, a, a numbers are assigned to you meaning that if you had gang affiliation you have five points if you have this if you had in interaction with the police you have this one point right, it's interaction not Inter- conviction or anything right, like right. that it's so like-, like even field interview cards right, well, yeah. like you could be stopped tomorrow and there's an fi card and it could be a consensual stop it doesn't have to be anything like, where are you going? Oh, I'm just going home. Well, what, can I check your backpack? No, you can't. Okay, well, so who are you? So all of this information is going into these databases. So it's, it, and, and even arrests too, because there's no conviction. Right. Right? I, so this is what happens. And then a profile is created of these individuals, which then is known as a chronic offender bulletin that you're deemed as a chronic offender. And then these chronic offender bulletins are then put up into like literal most literally like most wanted posters. It's like a bulletin, like it goes it, it around a as a publication. Yeah. And then and then you're traced and tracked and in that various forms of technologies are used. For example, Stingray uh, your, your cell phone catchers are used in that thing. Uh, license plate readers are used. CCTV's closed circuit television is being used as well. So again, and I think this is where we need to, the way we've been approaching that and talking about is that, and, and while for the last three or four years with Black Lives Matter and more and more, you know, spotlight being put on, on, on police murders, but what we are trying to push for is that what is that trajectory before the bullet hits the body? Mm. Like what are the conditions and the programs on the ground that lead to that escalation. I mean, why was Philando Castillo stopped 52 times? What was going on before Philando Castillo was shot and killed in, 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 in Minnesota, 
right? right? Right. So I think so. These are a lot of things that need to be need to be unpacked, and this is what these tactics and programs are doing. I did kind of want to follow up on that. So you have these two different types of profiles, correct? The individual and the community based one. How much do those two profiles actually interact? How much information or cross information is there uh, in this, or is it just you know these profiles are following you along no matter where you move in, in your life? Do, do the community profiles maybe impact or inform how the personal profile is built out, or is there no connection formally between these two different profiles? They're very much, uh, uh, they, they interact and intersect. I mean, you know, because hotspot policing is not just about, like, you know, just where crime may have happened. Hotspot policing also leads to the person-based predictive policing as well. So, so in essence, um, you know, you could talk about 18th Street Gang you know, right here up the street in, in Lincoln Heights and, you know, in, in, in northeast L.A. So how does that whole community is laid under siege as a result of the presence of a, of a, of a gang affiliation or what have you, right? So how then, and now we are seeing and we are investigating that how people are being impacted. There are cases right now in, in El Sereno, in Lincoln Heights, uh, Pedro Cheveria, Manuel, and various other people, and these are names, that these are public names as well. So um, that how people, uh, for example, um, the, the record of, of, of jaywalking, mm. right? That is a stop. How jaywalking leads to that interaction, how jaywalking can potentially lead to you being in a chronic offender bulletin. So, so then, and then we have to bring in gentrification, that how these areas are now being targeted um, uh, before predictive policing and continuing on. There was broken windows policing. Broken windows policing is basically where, you know, just that a broken window in a neighborhood uh, signifies that it's dilapidated, so it needs to be, so this, which can lead to petty crime, to sex work, to drug use. So how do we police this area to prevent larger or, or bigger crime from happening? But what what happens is that Broken Windows was was instituted in Los Angeles in 2005 as Safer Cities Initiative mm-hmm. in Skid Row, which is the most heavily policed zone of any community in the United States. Um, so Broken Windows, which which led to uh, in the first year 12,000 tickets that were issued to unhoused people, yeah. from jaywalking to and then then in, enforcing municipal codes like throwing ash on the sidewalk from your cigarette or just sitting on the sidewalk is considered a crime. So this is how then predictive policing. So I think, again, we need to look at it that how each one of these intersects and how each one of these policing tactics and programs have been built on top of another, but the impact remains the same. It's the same communities that are being impacted. And and it, and it is it is intentionally done. It is the intent to cause harm to these communities. Right. I did want to ask you actually about Operation Laser, mm-hmm. uh, the Los Angeles strategic extraction and restoration process. Right. If you can maybe tell us a little bit about Operation Laser and how it kind of interacts with the chronic offender bulletins that you've been right. talking about. Sure. So, so, the, so the name by itself uh, was that, and this is a part of what is known as a smart policing uh, uh, project. Uh, and then, uh, and of course, you know, we are we are bringing we are looking at this partnership. Or this 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 really really criminal partnership, I would say, between private agencies, private corporations. But I think this is where the academia needs to be brought into the conversation as well. Um, that how um, the the idea behind the laser program was that, and this is how it was stated in their documents, that we need to remove cancer 
from our communities. Jesus. And we will do it with, the, with laser precision to right. go in. Precision. So this, this was exactly why that laser term started off right. as well, that people are cancers in our community, and we would go in. So then the acronym LASER, Los Angeles Strategic Extraction and Restoration Program. In that, Chronic Offender Bulletin is a part of the overall laser program. Uh, in that also is that information is picked up from various sources. So Palantir, uh, which has now become a very well-known data processing, uh, uh, you know, just a, a search engine uh, and data integration program is one of the primary sort of factors that gathers information from various places, uh, whether it's through field interview cards, whether it's your previous history of, of arrest, whether it's your previous history of, of being identified as gang-affiliated, whether it's your previous history of, of you know just various things, so that's where that's where the laser program comes in. Um, we have been asking, and the Stop LAPD Spine Coalition is looking to release a report, a community-based report, by in the next couple of months, by the end of November, hopefully, which will be digging deep on the human impact. We're also asking the LAPD and filed for extensive public records to to get actual chronic offender bulletins. We want we're asking for race data, ethnicity data, gender data. As well, because through other programs we are finding clear racial profiling in that. So it is. It started in Newton Division, um, which is in South Central Los Angeles. Uh, it has expanded to twelve divisions now, at least uh, since the late twenty fifteen, um, and it's expanding to the rest of the twenty one. So, uh, so there's a lot of these programs that are going on. Um, what is happening is that it is really giving police extra judicial authority. Mm. Because under the guise of, of preventing crime and preemptive policing, these type of talk tactics are being instituted and expanded, and 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 uh, and you know just in, in the guy in, under the guise of of crime prevention, lives are being destroyed and young people are being targeted. But it's not only that. I think we also have to look at that how these tactics are not. I mean, it goes back to social control and policing of the body. So, for example, how risk assessment tools and predictive algorithms are being used by Child Protective Services. Mm. How now these platforms are, are now being, the investments are made by Department of Children and Family Services. The same thing as LASER uses in allocating points to, to determine criminality or, or, or how do you, prior, how, what the priority is, where do you fall, is the same thing that they're looking at these point systems. And we were able to look at one from Allegheny County, Pennsylvania. And when you look at it, I mean, it clearly has the face of a poor black woman written all over it for Child Protective Services. So, so then the, 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 the claim being that we can determine through risk assessment that such and such person may potentially be an abusive parent. So how do we preemptively protect the child and just put them in foster care and things like that? So the viciousness and the cruelty of these systems, it's not just about you know, mass incarceration. It's really building a carceral state all around us. Yeah, it seems like all these things, like the idea of lasers and precision, just uses. It's kind of like scientific racism, you know. It's just like using this language oh, of digital Jim Crow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, oh, the computers can't be racist, therefore we can do whatever we want. <laughs> the algorithm uh, is colorblind. Yeah, it's, the yeah. computers are just leading us to the broken windows. Right. Not, you know. Uh, I'm curious how that actually actively works with gentrification, and um, you can talk about you know Michael Body and the 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 coming Crenshaw Mall redevelopment and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, to what degree is the LAPD working with capital to to target certain areas to clear them for redevelopment? Right. 
Well, the LAPD has always been working for capital. Right, right. I mean, going back to the Red Squads, uh, as we talked about it, that how protecting the the interest and protecting private property, whether it was in the form of uh, corporate interest or actual property of land and, and you know, just and how how uh, exclusion zones were created. So police has been on the front lines of, of keeping people away. So so segregation is very real and exclusion is an exclusionary zones are very real as well. But uh, increasingly, programs like Broken Windows, uh, and even before that, I mean, CompStat started in New York. So going back to gentrification in New York and how that moved into Los Angeles as well, uh, how Bill Bratton, who was the chief of NYPD, became the chief of LAPD and brought CompStat to LAPD, and then the gentrification of downtown. I mean, the models had been there, that broken windows policing being instituted. We are in Echo Park. I mean, we also need to look at that the history just didn't start with broken windows policing. We have to look at gang injunctions, that how gang injunctions started off in the 80s. I mean, and, and all of this we have to look at the, in, on the history of the war on crime the war on drugs, the war on gang, and now under the war on terror, I mean, this war on people continues to be unleashed and takes different forms, and it, it just sort of like, you know, it, it morphs itself into something which is supposedly new, but the intent remains the same. So increasingly now, I mean, Echo Park has been gentrified, downtown Los Angeles has been gentrified, Silver Lake has been gentrified, so now increasingly South Central is increasingly being gentrified as well. So Crenshaw Mall and Crenshaw District has become a big target of that. Um, and some of our colleagues and comrades and people in the community are, you know, have been directly targeted. I mean, there's an area out there by Crenshaw Mall known as the Jungles, where community members in mass, where SWAT teams have showed up, you know. And uh, and there are people, and you, you mentioned Michael Bodie. Michael Bodie's case is there. This is a, a young man in his 30s who's rebuilding his life, um, who has little children, uh, who is very well known in the community, has been mentoring young people, but... Of course, you know, by mentoring young people, then that means that, you know, that the young people would not would not be targeted as easily. So what is that intervention? Rather than going after young people, let's go to the source. Mm -hmm. So Michael Bodie becomes a direct target of, of, of this kind of intervention, of this kind of policing as well. So we are also looking at Michael Bodie's case to see that if Michael Bodie was in a chronic offender bulletin, whether that's through the laser program that he was targeted. So these, and, and it's not just Michael Bodie, there's about 15 or 16 other people. When they made this raid, there are, there are you know, elders in the community, people as old in their late, mid-70s who were picked up in the sweep as well. Wow. Right? So, so there is an en masse sort of sweep going on, but simultaneously that it was going on in East L.A. as well where people were being picked up in East L.A., in Lincoln Heights, in El Sereno. And I think we have to link it up with the, with the narrative that is constantly now building around now, you know, the war on gangs has taken on a different shift as well. Because now all of a sudden Trump is talking about MS-13, the Mara Salvatucha, and various other gangs, and this gang, and that gang. So then how does it enhance and how does it give more an expansion of police powers and how it just gives more and more extrajudicial policing and extrajudicial killings and on the same hand what we see that uh, at record numbers uh, police is murdering people around the United States.
Uh, I guess I guess I'd like to pivot uh, a bit. We're still going to be talking about surveillance because you know surveillance is all encompassing with all of these issues. But specifically to say a little bit more about how drones and their application in the domestic realm, how linked they are to what's going on I- internationally. Uh, of course, Barack Obama became quite famous for or infamous for being the droner in chief, right? Uh, you know the, the mass use of, by the military, the U.S. military, especially in Central Command's uh, area in the Middle East in particular, uh, for the use of drones. And I do want, I wonder what, how, how much are the, you know, the connections between them besides just saying, oh, the same manufacturers are producing the same types of drones? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's, there's a direct link. I mean, I think, um, well, let's look at Israel. And I think when we talk about policing in the United States, we have to bring Israel into the equation as well, because that's, that's one of the, and Israel is one of the biggest producers of drones as well. Mm. So the experimentation of, of, of controlling civilian population, quote, unquote, in an open-air prison uh, that uh, the Israel has created for Palestinian communities, drone becomes a very effective tool for control, for policing. So that example is right there. Um, drones are not only being used in Afghanistan and Pakistan uh, to murder communities and bomb communities, but they're also used to to traumatize people as well. So there is a direct link between what is going on around the world on drone use to what would it mean domestically in the United States. And I think I'll go back to what I was speaking earlier, that the example of North Dakota, that, I mean, we saw in 2015, they passed a law to equip police drones with non-lethal weapons, but which are not non-lethal because tasers, as an average, kill about 50 people a year. So they're not non-lethal weapons. Mm-hmm. But then what happened last year in Dakota Access, the, the, the water fight for communities? Drones were not only being used by state agencies or law enforcement agencies, but, but increasingly policing is also being outsourced. So Tiger Swan is a security company, which was an offshoot of, white, of, of, of Blackwater. The person who started Tiger Swan used to work for Blackwater. Just as Blackwater, I mean, at one time, there were 175,000 military personnel in Iraq, and there were 400,000 private contractors in Iraq. So similarly, policing of communities is being outsourced. So I think that's how we, because there's a lot of profit to be made. So when we talk about Palantir, we have to look at this outsourcing and how much money is to be made. So I think, so, so the example of North Dakota is very telling as what we can expect in the future. I mean, while, although, you know, they, they continue to claim right now and that, you know, they're ne- never going to be armed and they're never going to be surveilled and they're never going to be doing this, but we've heard this song and dance many times before. So that's what people are saying, that, you know, this is the kind of mission creep. So I think when we look at it and it's wholesome, there is a, din- a direct inter- intersection between international, internationally what's going with the drones and how this is, it is progressing domestically as well? What does the future hold? What would the policing future of policing look like in the United States? How outsourcing of policing is happening? And, um, and, and, and how, you know, counterterrorism and how community policing is a facade and an illusion for counterinsurgency tactics? I, I mean, I, I guess I'm curious because often when people talk about privatization and that being bad, uh, and obviously it's bad because that means, you know, more people get rich off of other people's suffering and stuff like that. But part of it that is often discussed is the way in which it um, outsources or it kills any any kind of democratic input because then it's, you know, just a private corporation. It's, a, you know, Blackwater is a black box. Like, we don't know what they're doing um, even more, even less than we know what the military is doing. Um, but so I guess, like, is there any meaningful 
community control over these police agencies already that is weakened by privatization? Or is it just the idea of further obfuscation that is at risk when we talk about privatization? So let's talk about the, the Los Angeles Police Commission. Yeah, that's, for, a, for a <laughs> that's a roundabout so, way to get to talking about so that. So <laughs> the L.A. Police Commission has been around since the 1920s, uh, almost close to 100 years, 90 years, I would say. Um, and I think the way, how do, we, how do we measure or gauge something? How do, they, how do we measure their performance? Um, so having been around for almost 90 years, what has happened is that after the Watts uprising, McCone Commission was established to investigate the police violence in the communities. After Rodney King, Christopher Commission was established, you know, to 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 investigate what is going on. After the Rampart scandal, LAPD was under a consent decree by the Department of Justice. So the point I'm trying to get to is that the purpose of a police commission is to provide meaningful oversight and to represent the best interest of the people. I mean, police commission would be considered as custodians of public trust, right? But they have utterly failed because they have these three examples of outside bodies coming in to investigate to the extent that the Department of Justice threatened with a lawsuit, which ended up in a consent decree to reform LAPD. And this is going back to the 1960s. So over the last... 65 or 60 years, they have utterly failed, at least what we know of. But what they are doing is, and this is where inherently the danger lies, that they, they create an illusion of community participation. They create this, this, this facade of community representation. And it's also very interesting that who makes up of the police commission? Right. I mean, most more recently, uh, there was a law professor uh, there were two law professors on the police commission, one who is a civil rights professor. The other one from Loyola Law School, Kathleen Kim, was a, does a lot of work around international human trafficking. So you would think that people would have some sense of that thing, too. Right now, the police commission, what it does is, and just last Tuesday, the, the, Steve Soberoff became the president. He's a land developer. Uh, from Pacific Palisades, subtle, and he had yeah. the uh, and he had the audacity to sit back and say and speak about like you know just just poor young kids who how do we prevent them from going into gangs and this that and the other and I'm like I don't know if we should be offended that a rich white man from Pacific Palisades is speaking about impacted black youth in South Central Los Angeles so this is this is the illusion of that then uh, there is the president of supposedly the most progressive foundation in in Los Angeles Liberty. Hill Foundation. Shane Goldsmith uh, is is a part of the police commission. Then there's another lobbyist, Cynthia McLean Hill. There's a uh, right here from Echo Park, the ED of one of the big nonprofits. She's also on the police commission, Sandra Figuera. And then there's a, an entertainment lawyer, Matt Johnson. So in essence, not only is their history completely, you know, just a failure, but even more currently, as people have gone, just last year during police commission hearings, eight people were arrested for speaking out, for going beyond two minutes of their public comment, or people collectively expressing their anger. So, and all eight of them were black folks that were arrested in a public meeting where the police commission is, then how do they, when do they meet, how do they meet at 9.30 in the morning on a Tuesday? inside the LAPD headquarters, which by itself is, you know, very restrictive space to go in, and how many people, and particularly in impacted communities, people who have two or three jobs, you know, how can they go to the police commission meeting? So, so you know, in essence, it, it, it again goes back to the bigger question of abolition of policing, 
that what what does it really mean and 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 how what does public safety real public safety really mean and what purpose are these police commissions really serving the sheriff's department uh, the civilian oversight commission was was established in in 2016 early last year it was voted on by the board of supervisors they had their first formal meeting in january of this year this is a new uh, civilian oversight commission it doesn't have any binding authority uh, because the sheriffs is is an independent body it's an elected body um, so i think for us uh, in our organizing i mean we don't go in expecting quite frankly anything from them but it becomes a space for for organizing it becomes a space for community education there's media over there so in essence when we speak about the the issues we speak directly to the community and not expecting for the police commission to be doing anything and they have proven us right over and over again <laughs> right uh- I do want to actually end on a very open-ended question, a little bit of a difficult one, perhaps, uh, you know, to close out. Uh, what does a world without police and prisons look like? You've just spoken about prison abolition. Uh, we haven't really maybe hit it on the, on, the, on the head just directly. Actually, it was abolition of policing, which includes, which includes prison abolition. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so I do, I do want to know a little bit about this. You know, you often get a lot of criticism, in particular from elements of the soft left, about how those who are advocating for police and prison abolition don't have a plan, if you will, quote-unquote, or they don't uh, realistically give us an idea of what a world like it would look like. So I do want to ask, how do we realistically get to that point on the one hand? And on the other, is it even possible to, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, abolish the police and abolish prisons under capitalism? Mm -hmm. So that's a, um, that is a, 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 you know, a pretty deep question. And I think uh, the best way to speak about that is, first of all, um, we have to acknowledge that violence is real. I mean, in our communities, I mean, this is intercommunal violence and, and, and needs and, and how people are, are dealing with each other. That is very real. But but we need to go into the circumstances that lead to that violence. So that's one piece. But before we start envisioning what the world without police would look like, we have to do a stock on what does the world with police looks like, first of all. Okay. And at least let's living in Los Angeles, let's look at it. I mean, with, with the policing, what has been the history of policing in Los Angeles? How have the communities been brutalized and their rights been violated? Why is it that Los Angeles Police Department is one of the most murderous police departments in the country, whereas uh, uh, President Obama even invited during his State of the Union address and talked about LAPD as a model? They are a model, but they're a model of violence. They're a model of brutality. They're a model of conspiracies. They're a model of violating people's rights constantly. So, so the world with police is, is extremely violent as we know it, which is perpetrated by the state itself. So they are the agents of the state and perpetrate violence on communities. So that's, that's where the police is. Now, so how do they get there and, and what options do we have? First thing, they have been extremely successful. And one of the biggest things that Bill Bratton was good at was PR, that they have, they have positioned themselves in this bigger realm of, of, of serving the community. But when you look at, and so that is one thing has happened. The second thing that has happened culturally and, and even politically and economically, I would say, is that how we have become in tuned to think of police as a public utility. It's that it is as necessary as water and electricity. This is a service that if the state doesn't provide, we can't survive. 
So I think there's this whole history which goes back, and which is very much rooted in white supremacy and, and in, in defending and protecting white privilege. So we have to also call that out as well. So the, the origins of policing and the development of the institution. So that's the other piece. Like when we talk about what the world with police looks like, this is what it does. I mean, it's protecting white privilege. It's protecting white supremacy. Then the third piece comes in about resources, which is which is the key piece, which is where Los Angeles Police Department sucks up 54% of the city's general funds, right? And when you look at youth development, it is less than one half of 1% that the city invests in youth development. So, so when you talk about the world with policing, then it is not a very happy picture. It's not a very rosy picture. And what it's showing us is that they are sucking up the resources which should be going into our communities. They are brutalizing our, our communities. They are developing these tactics and constantly criminalizing our communities. And, we're, and basically, we're living in a police state. So now let's flip the script and go back into and go into like what would the world look like without the police it is for for the stop lapd spine coalition and for many of our comrades and colleagues and other organizations it's a multi-generational thing i mean what we are doing is planting the seeds i mean there is no expectation that we hit a delete button and police would be gone but it is changing it's it's really changing hearts and minds for people to start thinking about what does public safety look like does public safety look like a new palantir data processing system or a fusion center, or public safety looks like a health health center or a youth center, right? Youth Justice Coalition, uh, they, they are a remarkable organization of young people. They did their own real research, and they have a 5% campaign. They started off with a 1% campaign and moved to a 5% campaign, identifying that even just taking 1% to 5% of all of LA County's criminal justice budget, Right? When we're looking at the court systems, the DA's office, uh, the prosecutorial branches, the adjudication branches, the, the prison system, the police, um, I mean, all the 84 cities of policing, that will result into 25,000 youth jobs, into 50 youth centers, into 500 peacekeepers amongst you. Just that one example. So now what does that do? Does it reduce violence or does it does it increase violence? I would argue it definitely reduces violence. So I think when you when you look at it through that lens, that where the resources are going. So when we talk about abolition of policing, it is really about a fight for resources as well. That it's a reallocation of resources. It's about disinvestment from policing of our bodies into reinvesting into the health and well-being of our bodies, into our communities as well. So I think this is how at least we think of abolition and when you start putting all of this together and all of these different moving parts, I mean, I think we can start envisioning that what the world without police would look like. And it is, it, it, it is obviously, it's not going to happen overnight. It is a, it's, it's a methodical way of how we fight, but we have to start thinking about it. We have to start practicing about it too. Very many people, I mean, as we go out um, and, and speak to the community, people are scared to call 911. Because there have been instances, we just did a whole, we released a report, we did a 43-year uh, research on LAPD, uh, resulting from one of, the, one of the cadets, a young 15-year-old girl, was, was sexually assaulted by a 31-year-old cop. This happened last month. Right. We went back 43 years to their Explorer and their, and their cadet program and did a whole research into their sexual and domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse. And time after time, every year you see that during their 
patrol, they're out there and assaulting people. On 911 calls, they have raped people as well. So I think, I mean, people really are looking at alternatives. Um, what does uh, what does healing mean in our communities? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of healing uh, justice going on. A lot of healing workers. People within communities are begin uh, understanding. I mean, people are practicing that. I don't know if you remember the South Central Farm, that big fi- uh, fight for for a community farm. That how it was gutted, and this was a peaceful community living there. I mean, how was I mean? I'm reminded of the move in Philadelphia. That how these communities were, were looking to develop self-sustenance. And historically speaking, let's look at the Black Panther movement. Let's look at the Black Panther Party, the, the, the breakfast program and various other programs. That was, And of course, constantly through this, we want to acknowledge that violence is real. These are human conditions that we have to acknowledge. But how attempts to preserve the health and well-being, were intentionally assaulted and attacked. So that is also the world that we live in with police, that they that there's an intent to cause harm. So, so I think when we talk about abolition, the first step is that how do we reduce harm? Because harm elimination ultimately is everybody's goal, right? But this is a, this is a process that over time, that how do we reduce harm over time? I guess it's about having a wholesale approach, right, to what our social problems. And we, even when we talk about violence, and like you say, you know, it is kind of part of the human condition, but absolutely it's a social uh, uh, thing as well, right? Where, where social uh, problems and social pressures create the conditions for heightened violence. It's absolutely. why in places like the United States, you know, the wealthiest, most powerful country in the world also happens to have higher levels of violence than absolutely. a lot of other of its, of its uh, industrialized peers. One has to ask, you know, what are those kind of social conditions that provide for that kind of uh, situation? Situation and have maybe social uh, responses to it, and yeah. not just the. I mean, you went from you went from slavery to segregation to Jim Crow laws to penal labor to prison labor, and now mass incarceration to the war on drugs, to the war on crime, to the war on youth, to the war on gangs, to the war on terror. So what we have seen is that when when did many communities, many communities in the United States or many other parts of the world have ever seen their life without policing? And when you think about it, policing has not worked. It has not worked. It has caused a lot of trauma and it has caused a lot of harm. So we have to start looking at alternatives. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, for people who are listening in L.A., is there a way that people can get involved in the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition? Absolutely. They should uh, go to our website, uh, www.stoplapdspying.org, stop LAPD spying, one word. Send us an email, stoplapdspying at gmail.com, or call us at 424-209-7450. Great. Uh, Hamid, thank you so much for coming to speak to us today. I know that, that you had to drive quite a bit away <laughs> from good. the other side of the county, but uh, thank uh, you for joining us. It's, it's my pleasure, and thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening. You can find more content online at concrete.la. That's K-O-N-K-R-E-T dot L-A. You can also find us on Twitter at Concrete Media and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Concrete Media. Our work wouldn't be possible without your support. Help us provide you with more audio and written content in multiple languages by subscribing at patreon.com forward slash concrete media.